Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Ryan Childs and Abhishek Kumar, the principals of Production Lending, who came back onto the podcast to talk about what they've been up to in the minerals and non-op space over the last three years, including their strategy for financing acquisitions, AFEs, and ground game teams. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Ryan and Abhishek had to say. Abhishek, Ryan, good morning and welcome back to the podcast. It's been about three years. Uh, good to have you back. You know, it's funny, it, it, it must be the theme of the month for me. I've had a couple of folks who it's been about a three-year break and they've circled back. So what's interesting about September 2020, um, when you guys were back on and and now, is that the world is completely different. You know, obviously, we're not in COVID. Commodity price environment, very, very different. There's some interesting geopolitical stuff going on. Interest rate environment's very different. And you guys are primarily lenders to the space. So all those things really matter and impact your business. So excited to kind of dig in and uh, peel the layers of the onion back. Uh, before we do that, you know, for anyone who wants to hear about the full production lending, you know, origin story uh, for Ryan and Abhishek, September 2020 was their original episode. By all means, go back and check that out. But uh, for everyone listening here, let's just do a, a quick refresh, guys. So what is production lending? What do you guys do? What do you focus on? Quick track record. And then we'll dive into some case studies and, and what's going on in today's market. Perfect. Yeah. So as means of an introduction, first of all, I want to let you know how impressed I was when I went to the Minerals and Royalties Assembly Conference a couple of weeks ago. You have completely transformed the event in terms of kind of the scale, number of attendees, and, and just the quality of conversation that happened there. So it's a great job on that, and, and thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so as an introduction, production lending was formed in 2016 and uh, we're focused on providing debt capital to small uh, oil and gas companies. Our typical transaction size varies from anywhere from $2 million to $35 million in size. We have, uh, since 2016, we have closed a little over 45 transactions and have deployed uh, more than $250 million in capital. These deals have been spanned across kind of uh, primarily debt, but we've also done some structured equity and, and common equity, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. And then, you know, what, out of your book, what percentages is operated, non-operated and, and minerals? Uh, I would say, uh, I mean, in terms of the type of deals we've done, just addressing that quickly, between minerals slash non-op and operated, I would say it's probably 50-50. The, the sort of deals we have done have been non-op AFE financings, minerals. Uh, Mineral acquisitions. And then we have been very active on the operated side as well, but again, which is the remaining 50%. But today we'll focus on sort of the, the mineral and, and non-op side. So happy to get into the detail on, on these type of deals if you would like. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So let's start. I'm going to look at it at three buckets for you guys, right? So there's going to be deal financing on the acquisition side, and that could be non-op and that could be minerals that's going to have a production base to it we'll get into some specifics there second bucket is is afe financing right from the non-op position and then third would be we'll call it ground game capital for folks kind of a line of credit for groups to go and buy ahead of the drill bit and so let's start with acquisition financing 
talk to me about kind of your typical terms and the general criteria, what you guys look for, check size. And then there's a couple of case studies on stuff you've done in the past to give examples and, uh, you know, real life context to it. Sure. So on the AFU financing side, so again, we've done it on both sides, right? Operated assets, acquisition financing, and and uh, on the non, on the sort of mineral side, uh, so or, or on the non-op side as well. We have done, uh, this, this transactions have been structured as debt and preferred equity and even com- like debt and preferred equity, mostly on the acquisition financing side. We like shorter tenor deals than longer tenor deals. Our typical tenor would be somewhere between a couple months to three years. And uh, on the mineral side, we recently did a transaction where, which is kind of structured more as a preferred equity, where we went in and provided $5 million of capital to the company. They put in $2 million. And this is not structured as debt. So there's no interest or clock or anything. This is purely sort of, hey, we, we get the money back. And then after that, the, the company gets us money back. And then they back into a much larger back end compared to what they would have gotten with a private equity, which is why the structure becomes very attractive for them. And then we have done a lot of sort of operated side acquisition financings as well, mostly on the debt side, where the borrower is required to put in anywhere from 20 to 30% capital or equity behind us, and then we'll come in and finance the rest. Have you ever found yourself wandering the halls of NAEP, feeling lost in the sea of boots and attendees, and thinking to yourself, where the hell are all the minerals and non-op executives? Well, my friends, worry no more. On February 8th, NAEP will be launching their inaugural Minerals and Non-Op Hub, which will serve as a dedicated and central location for minerals and non-op executives to network and show deals. For more information, please Google NAEP Minerals and Non-Op Hub or email exhibit at naepexpo.com. So if you're doing something, take an example, I, I got, and this is one of the case studies you share with me. So there's a, a minerals and non-op company backed by private equity, and you provided a $20 million bridge loan, and it was to finance some A fees and acquire some minerals in the Permian. Three months to three years, you know, in, in the scenario of like a three to six month bridge loan, is someone looking to then get the asset base and, and refinance to like an RBL, or are they looking to pay some of that down with cash flow, or they does it buy them time to reorganize the chess pieces in their portfolio and sell down to pay out the debt? I mean, I'm just curious the the MO of the borrower in this scenario and, and, and you know, for folks listening there, why a three to six month bridge loan makes sense. Sure. Uh, Ryan, do you want to talk about this particular case study? Yeah. The, sure, sure. Yeah. So we have effectively looked at a lot of deals where, you know, I think people are kind of adding value. I think one of the big changes that we've seen in the market is where people are investing now versus, you know, where companies used to invest. You know, th- this type of deal where I think you have the ability to partner with larger companies that are drilling wells, you have more predictability around what the cash flows are going to look like. And also, you know, it's it's in a different being consistent. They're newer wells. You have less maintenance capex. You have I don't know, just the ability not to have to worry about a lot of issues that you might if you're an operator of a smaller, older field. And so, you know, this company came in and, you know, what we've seen happen with a lot of these type of deals was that companies would say, you know, I I have newer wells. I can't get credit from a bank to 
do this, you know, acquisition. I need you to finance the development for me. We take some development risk, although you're also valuing the acreage and then trusting the team is smart. And, you know, once they have a bunch of wells that will come online, you know, the banks will start to give them more credit for that. I mean, even today, this one deal Abhishek was talking about before we we jumped on the call, we we funded another group of AFEs for them. So, and we're even thinking about upsizing in that deal. So I think that's just the type of thing where, you know, the market has shifted a bit where these type of deals, you know, for us make a lot of sense, but, you know, it's something that, um, you know, we didn't see as much as five years ago. Yeah. And, and just to answer one of your, your questions, Tim, why someone would come in and just get capital for three or four months, right? So uh, I would say when I give our range of three months to three years, uh, the deals that we typically lose in, in three months were somehow probably came to us while they were working with commercial banks. Unfortunately, that is just part of the business. Our, the way our debt is structured is it does not have uh, a lot of the prepayment penalties that you see in some of our peers private debt capital. So I would say probably we lose about 10% of those deals within that less than one year time frame, which is just kind of the part of the business. I mean, obviously we would have loved for those deals to stay for longer, but they they took us out from kind of cheaper cost of capital, which is bank. But then uh, typically our, our regular, the remaining 90% is probably somewhere between that one year time frame to a three year time frame. So. No, Ryan's point is interesting. It's just, I hear it all, all the time, right? It's just, you know, the wells are getting drilled and you know from an oilman's perspective you can get comfortable based on offset data and you know what else has been happening with that operator but it's just too new for the the bank to get comfortable with you know i think the the golden handcuffs on commercial banks are getting tighter and tighter right and so that that opens up an opportunity for someone like y'all to step in and and help bridge that gap so that's that's great you know that example was in the permian some folks may say oh okay does it have to be core permian where else will you look this other case study was you know backing a non-op firm with a $7 million bridge loan uh, on an acquisition of non-op assets in the Uinta. So a Uinta, great rock, very, very tiny. But for those who know the Uinta, love the Uinta and wish there was more Uinta for sure. Uh, I know a lot of minerals guys who come across Uinta deals and the wells are, are big, big oil wells. But tell me a little bit about that. And then just more broadly speaking, when you guys are looking at the zip code of a deal, you know, how much that matters and, you know, what kind of constraints you have from, you know, where the deal is based. Sure. So generally, to to answer your last question first, uh, in terms of uh, location, I mean, unless the deal is in California or the deal is in Alaska, right, or in certain regions of Louisiana, we're typically agnostic, right? I mean, if, if you have PDP and all that now, again, if you're financing development, you have to be very focused on what you're kind of, where you're going. For example, like if I'm taking equity risk, like, and we are financing development, I would rather try to like take more focus on the core of the core areas, be it Permian or Hainswell, Marcellus, Eagleport, and we, we've done transactions all across the space. So now talking specifically about the $7 million transaction that you talked about, so this fits into the bucket of a non-op acquisition finance that we did and uh, where the company was looking to raise capital really quickly because the bank typically what they promised couldn't deliver. The prices had risen since they had signed the PSA and the PSA had a tight timeline associated with them. So they had to close the transaction by a certain timeline. And if they didn't do it because the price had gone up, the seller could either retrade to them or put the asset back into the market. We were able to come in, close the transaction in a span of less than two weeks 
weeks and uh, provide the financing and all that to the company and kind of go from there. So yeah, that, that is a little bit of insight on this deal. But to talk more specifically about Winter Basin, uh, this was one deal that we did in Winter Basin, which was acquisition financing. But then Ron and I also did NAFE financing in sort of the equity construct where borrower just didn't have the capital to finance like all the AFEs that they were getting from the uh, operator. And we stepped in and we bought in the AFE from them and gave them much larger upside compared to what a typical private equity would give in return for some some security in the upfront. Okay, great. And what type of uh, kind of debt to equity ratio are you guys requiring? Is there something standard? Is it Does it vary deal to deal? What what does that look like? Yeah, it, it varies on, on what sort of structure you're looking for. For example, just to throw out some examples. So if you're looking at acquisition financing for a PDP asset, then, and it is structured as debt, it would probably be somewhere around 20 to 30% equity required. And if you're talking about preferred equity structure, again, you can probably go as low as 15% and as high as whatever, 30, 35%, depending on what the borrower wants to do. In that case, it will depend, it will determine what sort of upside they get in the back end, because the more equity they put in in the front end, we can give them way more upside in the back end because it looks more, we, we are more secured in the upfront. So, so it depends on the type of transaction you're working on, what sort of security we have and all that. But there is like, we, we typically would not do a deal without getting the game with, from the, from the company or from the management. Okay. Yeah, no. And just, so just wrapping up the points there, I think what's interesting for those listening is, you know, if, if you're working through a deal and, and there's kind of a short term need to fill the gap on capital, someone drops out, something happens, you know, the deal space, there's always something that pops up. You guys, do you attribute it to your technical abilities in-house to be able to move in a one to two week period? I mean, in that scenario, what can you speak to that? Because that that's a great that, that's a great calling card to have, but it, it it can be challenging, right? To get caught up to speed and comfortable to, to underwrite something. So speak that really quickly, and then we'll move on to the second bucket, uh, the AFE financing. I'll, yes. I'll say it's probably the, the lack of our technical abilities. You know, I mean, just, just quickly, like, and it's probably, you know, evolution of the industry over the last 10 years, you know, deals that used to get done versus what gets done today, you know, used to be able to walk in with a reserve report that showed a $50 million valuation and get 100% financing for a $25 million deal. Th those type of things don't get done anymore. You know, what does get done is, you know, actual financials, somebody putting skin in the game with you and, you know, having all the data and being prepared and organized. And I think that's something, you know, that we always look for. And again, Abhishek and I are very, very fortunate that we run our own business. We don't have, you know, outside committees that we have to approve everything by. And so when we want the ability to close the deal quickly, if a team is organized, they have the data, they have, you know, some capital that they're willing to put behind us, you know, we can move pretty quickly. So that's, that's definitely been a hope, but you know, challenges, I think, on certain times where you're trying to get a reserve report, which, you know, we, we do get, but, you know, there are times you can take a month, you know, to do that. And if the underlying profitability and equity don't fit, you know, that doesn't matter. So I, I would attribute it to our basic financing and, and lack of technicals. So the the dog whistle is alignment and you're really betting on the jockey and having That's, their, their house in order. Very important. I mean, 10 years ago, people used to do the 100% financing deals. And we have this conversation a lot with people where philosophically as a lender, I cannot take 100% of the risk and give you 100% of the upside. That just doesn't fit. There used to be a lot of people doing that. I don't know anybody that's really doing it today. And alignment, like you said, is is integral. That's that's pretty critical. Excellent. And you mentioned... 
just curious because this kind of ties into something I was going to ask later. So that you and and Abhishek run the firm together. Have you guys kind of bootstrapped this and and start to have your own pool of capital that's internal, or do you have investors that have backed you? I'm just curious because this goes into you know interest rate environment and, and if you're getting money from a third party, you know how that's affected y'all's ability and what you have to charge. Just kind of curious since it came up. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, theoretically, high interest rates are just supposed to have a negative impact on the on kind of the private lending market because the underlying business is not doing as great while the sort of the, the cost of capital has has gone up but due to confluence of economic geopolitical policy factors like for our sector, the issue of underinvestment has been exacerbated and that has resulted in higher commodity prices, which has ultimately resulted in the sector doing generally well till not just till now, but the consensus is that will continue to do well. So overall, things have generally been, been well for us. Now, during this time, the bank's cost of capital has more than double. So recently, while for us, like, uh, I mean, our, and, and I'll, I'll talk in more detail about how we sort of structured, but our cost of capital has sort of a, a fixed component where the, the rates just do not change, which is why our cost of capital has not changed as much as our peers have. While on the other side, the bank's cost of capital has now ballooned from somewhere around five or five and a half percent to now the, the term sheets that we're seeing from the banks have been somewhere around 11 to 12 percent range, which just, I mean, kills the spread, right? I mean, why would you then kind of go after something where you're going with the semi-annual borrowing-based redetermination and you're going through all the pains to get it get it approved and, and you're like fit in a box. So that has made uh, sort of the private capital very lucrative overall. Now we, on our side, we have a portion of the capital that has a fixed cost associated with it, which comes from sort of high net worth individual. And then the there is a portion of it that comes through a line of credit, which Ryan and I have a large line of credit where the, the rate is variable. So yes, we, we have experienced a higher cost of capital, but it is very minimal compared to what some of our peers have seen or what the banks have seen. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Looking to ramp up deal flow for your minerals and non-op ground game? Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has closed on over 120 deals, totaling $110 million in value, with deal sizes ranging from 50 k upwards of $5 million. Whether you're looking for white space, permit, duck, PDP, AFE, or wellbore-only deals, the Texas Mineral Company has got you covered. For more information on how to source deal flow from the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at Toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. 
Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Does your team ever struggle with employee turnover? What about right-sizing your team to fit your company's needs over time? Do you have the right accounting systems and software in place to maintain control and visibility on all your cost centers? If any of these things are challenges in your business, then Opportune's back office outsourcing could be the right solution. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. No, that, that's super helpful. Very good. Let, let's move on to the second bucket then. So we, we've talked a little bit about AFE financing part of in part of like an acquisition, but you know, someone now comes into their, this is not a deal. They just have AFEs in hand. Talk to me about the criteria, kind of structures, preferred equity, you know, debt, common equity, et cetera, duration, and then, you know, some examples of stuff you've done in the past. So over to you guys. We typically love AFEs. I mean, I feel like the, the shale industry has evolved so much that you can have a pretty good idea if you have an AFE you know, what the well is going to do within some range. Very different from the conventional world where you can drill a great well and 200 feet away, you can drill a zero. You know, that just doesn't happen. So, you know, where the question is really how much oil or how much natural gas am I going to get and not if I'm going to get it, you know, it takes some risk out of the equation. You know, there are certain areas where we've seen people that have paid, you know, somebody will, you know, some small owner will get, you know, six AFEs from EOG for 10 million bucks and they can't afford it, but they don't want to sell out because they know it's a great area. You know, we, we've we been able to, you know, help structure some deals in those scenarios where we say, look, we'll fund this 10 million for you, but we want to get all our cash first. We're not going to give you any premium on, you know, paying for the AFE. And then you can stay in the deal and you can back in for X amount, you know, depending on how how good the area is. You know, the, the benefit for us of doing that is, you know, hopefully you won't take single well risk, even though that's kind of a, a 1% risk, you don't want to have it happen and lose everything. You know, so you sort of diversify across that. And then, you know, a lot of these, you know, these wells might cost, you know, $10 million. You know, you should in a, in a decent commodity price environment, you know, generate, you know, $20 million of cash flow in, you know, five or 10 years, you know, just a hypothetical example. And so you can sort of look at that and saying, it's not up, there's no GNA, which is a, a big burden on a lot of companies. And I can just know that over time, I'll get this money back and have an opportunity in a tax efficient way to make some upside. You know, that that to us is is a great win. You know, where are we have companies that put in a lot more capital and they say, you know, we're one company we're talking to is amassed a large position of minerals and, and non-op acreage. And they just want a debt facility because they put in so much capital. And we can look at that and say, we can figure out something around how you, you know, pay interest on it. But we know we're really well protected. We know these wells will get drilled. And I think that's part of the benefit when you're talking across the space as a whole is that, you know, people don't realize how little tier one inventory is left in every basin. Permian's probably the biggest, but, you know, Eagleford, the top guys there might have eight or 10 years left of tier one, tier two acreage. Everybody else there has less. And so you can look at this and say, I know these wells will get drilled at some point. It's really just a matter of when. And if I can limit my risk, you know, to just timing, you know, that's something you can structure around. Yeah. And like Ryan said, like, I think in the, I mean, due to all these reasons in the last 18 to 24 months, AFE financing has probably been like one of the biggest components of our business, just because A, there's a lot of volume 
of such deals. And then B, there is not a lot of capital, especially on the debt side that is chasing to finance these. Majority of what you will see is people buying AFEs or like willing to equity finance them. But being able to do preferred equity or, or debt, <laughs> I've not seen a lot of capital kind of like chasing to do those deals. How do you got, you know, last year, there was definitely some some cost inflation, some run-ups, uh, bloated AFEs, I'll call them. Um, you know, when you guys start to get AFEs across your desk, I'm sure you saw some of that. How have you viewed that and and tried to curb some of that risk? That's that's something you gotta really pay attention to. And you know, we've you know, we had an, an operator that uh, we worked with that they were drilling wells a couple of years ago at six hundred and fifty dollars a foot, and that went up to nine fifty. You know, you've seen that everywhere. You know, just sort of you were in this disinflation, <laughs> low price environment, and that you know really changed. You know, that's probably one of the biggest things you have to look at, which is why I think a lot of what we've done is to go with operators that you know are consistent. There are operators, you know, large public companies that are good at this, and there are ones that are that are not, frankly. But you don't want to do a deal and have somebody say, my AFP is going to be $10 million, and then it comes in at 20 you know, and I, and I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing more operators that are, or more companies that are focusing on operators that actually have a good track record of, of managing cost. Um, because it is definitely something that it's something you're going to pay attention to. And, and that's also something that, you know, exacerbates the cycle. I mean, if you're like us and you believe that, you know, good commodity prices are going to be here to stay for a while, you're $80 in oil and $3 for natural gas, people can make good money at those prices. And if you're living there, and costs are going up, it, it just makes it more challenging to drill wells economically. And I think over time, you know, you're going to have to have commodity prices rise. I just don't think you're getting, you know, the supply response now, you know, to really help us in the future. And I think that's something that's, you know, it, it works in the cycle. Yeah. The, the other thing you mentioned, Ryan, is just how little tier one inventory is left. And you don't know if people really can appreciate that. I'll, uh, I won't name the bank or the basin just uh, for confidentiality reasons, but I'm currently marketing a, a, a minerals position and the operator, the single operator that's over the position is currently being marketed for sale. So I, I had a conversation with this bank who's run the process and they gave me some insight and color that they were able to share publicly. And one of the, this is a non-Permian deal. He said, one of the interesting takeaways ways is that there was a lot of Permian private equity looking at this transaction. It, had, it was a sizable deal and there's a lot of running room and they're looking for that drilling inventory and they can't get it in the Permian because they're getting priced out by the publics. And you know, something that happened quite what that came up quite a bit at my minerals conference a few weeks ago was, you know, what what does the Permian look like in 2030? And that was just kind of a food for thought question we threw out. And one of the comments I, I believe Casey Stallings at Desert brought up was, hey, I, I think that some of these operating teams go outside the Permian and really export their operating IP to make it work in other basins. Why? Because you know the the good core stuff is going to be drilled out in the Permian. And it's so expensive for them to make the private equity returns that they need for their management team to hit their waterfalls. They're going to have to go into some different areas. It's just not going to be able to make it work in a manufacturing mode type environment in the Permian that you know is controlled by Exxon and, and others, right? So I don't know, that that was a, a real life example of seeing that. And I, I just think as a minerals owner or a minerals buyer, that becomes super interesting to keep your eye on. You know, what are the chess moves that 
happen on the upstream A&D space in other basins outside the Permian that be, make buying minerals compelling ahead of the drill bit versus kind of historical development pace and everything. So just kind of a food for thought, but but interesting, right? And, it's, and it's, what, you, what you mentioned, I mean, we, we Ryan and I actually have seen examples of that in, in Permian itself. So on the Permian side, people were very focused on kind of the core areas, right? Midland Basin, Midland County or Howard County and all that. And, and Dowson County or Scurry County, all, all of these were considered like stepchilds. Nobody would like to kind of go in there. And and just in, in the last like three years alone, the level of activity that has happened in these areas, the amount of M&A that has happened, the number of wells that have been drilled, the number of operators that have gone in, in, in all these counties, that is amazing. And, and I mean, now you're seeing public M&A happening in uh, in these counties as well. So mm-hmm. this is, uh, it, it's one thing I would say too, is just another example of, you know, the changing industry. I mean, th- this is one thing I think is just interesting to, to touch on. Abhishek and I, we, we banter all the time back and forth. And I remember saying years ago, you know, the, the market has changed, you know, where are you going to invest to make money? And, you know, we had said one of the best areas is non-op and royalties. You know, you're, you're allowing other people you know, to drill wells for you, where you either have a non-op, you know, cost-bearing basis or no cost-bearing basis with minerals. And, you know, it's a much different environment that you're seeing with a lot of these smaller conventional operated fields. And, you know, that's certainly proven true. I think just Tim, what you were mentioning with the activity of what people are doing now, but, you know, one of the things that's also exacerbated that issue is that, you know, there was maybe five years ago where a lot of teams would come in and they would try to take over these older fields, redevelop them and, you know, try to make a, a really good profit. Those deals still exist, but they're much more infrequent, you know, than we saw before. And part of the reason is, you know, companies are scared about the environmental liability of older fields. There are more maintenance capex that I think people are finally realizing, you know, that I'm going to have to fix a lot of pumps, holes in tubing, flow lines, et cetera. And as those fields get older every year, those issues become more and more real. And so, you know, we look at this as just, I think this trend where you're going to have teams that are going to focus on that and you're going to have capital that will flock to that, you know, that is a, to me, where the market is going. And I think there's still really good opportunities in the sort of conventional investment space, but I think you got to search hard for those. You know, we closed one a couple months ago, you know, a small deal, redevelopment of an older field, but that used to be our bread and butter five years ago. And, and now I think we've made a concerted shift to go towards this non-op and royalties because honestly, there, there's much less risk there. And I think these teams, to your point, will continue to take their expertise of what we've learned there either bring them to other basins that aren't, you know, getting that, you know, the the multiple inflation of how much it's costing to enter a deal, et cetera, in the Permian, and they're going to take it to other areas, or they're taking, you know, their unconventional expertise and bringing those to other conventional reservoirs. You know, that is a big thing. I think when we talk about, you know, technology and what people are doing, you know, that you're going to see more of in, in the future, but yeah, smart teams are, are certainly going down this path. There's no question. Yeah, the, the environmental liability, um, on the conventional side is interesting because yeah i hear about that all the time i just spoke with someone this morning that's their business model right go in mm-hmm. buy unloved assets that are pdp heavy we rework them give them a little extra love and uh you know the guy told me he goes hey it's it's not a sexy strategy it's not new but it but it works and i, I told him i said i think there's plenty of folks who want to do that it's just hard to get capital around that and that's the barrier and private equity is not going to do it so mm-hmm. yeah for sure i i think technology transfer and 
and operating IP transfer over to that. I, I think on um, the the op the, the maintenance capex side of it, you got to have automation and different things coming into play to drive down those costs, right? And and those things are becoming more and more prevalent every day. But to your point, to drive it home on the newer stuff, you know, a lot of these companies are getting uh, increased pressures around ESG and having environmentally friendly operations. So those the new infrastructure, the new wells, as they age, have less and less of, of the same problems that some of this older stuff does. So let's just fast forward and a hypothetical example, 10 to 20 years from now, maybe that reworking the old stuff and refracking wells and all that becomes more doable on, on some of this stuff that's being drilled in this ESG era, right? But I, I think that's that's for sure. I mean, you, you talk about the percentage of oil that you're getting out of these shale um, areas today. I mean, it's, it's not much. I mean, 10%, maybe probably less. So there still is a lot of oil to extract, but I think that is something that you know, will be the future refracting works in some areas, not in others. You know, those fields will become the the older fields. And I think the other stuff is unfortunately going to become problems because the stuff that's 30 or 40 years old now is going to be 50 or 60 years old in the future. I mean, we had an operator that we know is marketing a field and they had great consistent cash flow. Highest bid was three months of cash flow because it had so much PA liability with it. You know, people used to I mean, we had a gentleman that we we knew we worked with that you know built and you know sold his own company for a lot of money did really well he started doing that doing these stripper well fields and now there's just no appetite for it hey guys i wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors your property is your legacy so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own if you own all gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who since 1929 has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets, such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has been a leading ground game broker for minerals and non-op deals, closing over 120 transactions across the Permian, Scoop Stack, Haynesville, Bakken, Powder River Basin, DJ, and Eagleford. With deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million and 1.5 NRAs upwards of 3,500 NRAs, the Texas Mineral Company can be flexible on where and how they can source your deal flow. For more information on how your team can work with the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Scaling up your portfolio while minimizing GNA is the name of the game in the minerals and non-op space. Whether you're a brand new fund, an established team who's growing quickly, or a fully developed portfolio in harvest mode, Opportune's back office outsourcing team can help. Stop worrying about all the headaches that come along with day-to-day -day accounting and back office operations and contact Opportune today. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit 
www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Let's circle it back to minerals, kind of the third bucket for you guys. And I find this interesting. I really love you to get in the weeds on how you structure it and some real life examples and case studies. But, you know, the name of the company is Production Lending, but you're willing to back ground game aggregators to buy out of the drill bit. So it should we think of it as a line of credit? Is, is the alignment really big in this one? Is it personal collateral? Is it, you know, if I'm thinking of the guys who would need something like this, right? It's your brokers on the ground that start to do well, that start to buy for their own account. And then they're like, man, I don't want to sell that deal to so-and-so private equity fund. This is a good deal, but I don't have all the capital myself. Let me get a line of credit. And, and start to warehouse this internally, getting that line of credit is easier said than done these days. And so your relationship with ground game guys like this, what does that look like? Break it down. Yeah, I mean, the I'll probably better explain through just an example, which we recently did. So recently, I mean, I would say probably about two or three months ago, we did this transaction in Eagleford where we basically provided a line of credit. It was like, it's a committed line of credit where we provided $5 million of capital. It was structured as preferred equity. The company put in $2 million of capital. The idea was to go out and, and buy minerals in Eagleford. And these, again, minerals roles was supposed to be in the core areas of, of Eagle Ford. The, the team was very strong and very sort of experienced buying tier one or tier two minerals with kind of like strong operators. Th that was the whole thesis. Fast forward just two or three months now, all of the capital has now been deployed. And uh, we're not talking about upsizing, which we are very interested in doing because things are going much better than what we thought. The amount of permits that were supposed to drop are, are much better now, much more than what we had projected. So yeah, th that investment is going really well and we're looking at upsizing. But the, the whole idea is like the way we structured and why we structured it is it gave the company. So while we talk about, hey, we, we always do kind of shorter tenor deal, this was actually a longer tenor deal, which is what the management team required because they needed some time for this uh, position to be developed and not be in the under the crunch to like monetize it quickly. There's no interest clock clicking. Obviously, this is preferred equity. So sales structured as just sort of a BPO, BPO type structure, they got significantly more upside than they would have with like other sort of equity structures. So they they kind of wanted to really push towards this sort of preferred equity structure. And, and I mean, this team was previously backed by large private equities and they ultimately came in and chose to kind of work with us. So that's kind of, will give you an example as to the rational for this whole thing. Mm. That's super interesting to me. Um, so in a $5 million preferred equity set up, I mean, what kind of governance you guys have this is obviously going to be built brick by brick they're not going to do one deal um, on a ground game and so you guys are you know small lean team you got other parts of your business you don't want to be looking at a million deals i'm assuming so what what kind of oversight or level of comfort can you get around that i mean i think there's going to be a lot of folks out there that that, that would be interesting compelling the one thing ground you know deal guys hate is having to report to somebody on every single thing and then compromising speed, which is very important in taking down the really good deals that have a small window. So just, again, peel another layer back on 
on that Eagleford uh, arrangement. That That's interesting. Sure. So, I mean, th- this is, again, like what Ryan said earlier, this is actually more about just betting on the jockey, right? We did a lot of homework on the management team. We kind of like looked into the track record and like we're talking for them for a while and we got really comfortable with sort of their underwriting, their kind of the way they look at the deals and all that and that sort of jive. So we're going to be very selective in it. In terms of oversight, I mean, like just beyond a certain side of the transaction we we come in and still like to kind of approve the deals but otherwise i mean every single deal that they've shown to us until now was was approved i mean we're relying on them mm-hmm. right now are not kind of engineers or geologists so we still want to make sure that the economics makes sense but that's pretty much it i mean we, we're kind of betting on the jockey at this point so and, and one one thing in particular that we did you know give to the team we we obviously say you can't you know do xyz financing or divestments or anything without our approval but you know we said you know, we run a small team, but we're trying to think we're very on top of the ball. We we told them, and we have this in our documents, if we don't respond to you within three days, you know, it's automatically approved. So you're not going to have to wait for us and go through weeks of, you know, whatever, you know, they send something, we're available to jump on the phone and, and talk through it. And, you know, ultimately we're, we're a capital provider. We're not running a show. We're not dictating, you know, what teams do. I think that we can give ideas of just thematically what we're seeing may work and what may not. But ultimately, you know, we're backing teams teams that are smart and thoughtful. And if we're not being helpful on that, you know, we're not doing our job. So we're not here to get in the way of anybody and, you know, again, dictate, you know, how they run their own business. But, you know, we want to help provide value and, and be be supportive in, you know, areas and teams that are doing the right things. Now, I, I can wrap my head around if you're providing a line of credit, they just need to meet the interest payments and it's up to them to sell down or buy correctly and, and cash flow hits, you know, on new drills in a preferred equity position. You know, how are you guys underwriting it in terms of returning your capital? Are you planning on, you know, a sell down or, you know, flip the portfolio at a certain point? Part of it through cash flow and you know distributions. I mean, talk to me about how you guys kind of look at that because you're really becoming like a l- little mini private equity firm at this point, right? Um, just structured differently. So I'm curious to see how you guys look at that. I, I think the way that we you know will think about this, which you know something that, that was explained to us by another team that you know does make a lot of sense, is that the biggest value that you're going to get in the mineral space is buying something you know before it's permitted, before it's a duck well. Having leases would be great, but you're going to get the biggest value uplift of buying something, then having it get permitted, then having a duck well, and then finally production comes online. And so, you know, smart teams know this, you know, there are guys that say, look, I want to buy cash flow. I'm going to come in when it's a duck well, and then I'll get cash flow, but you're not going to make a, a big return on it. I think when teams come in and they say, "My, what I want to do, and this is what this team did, is I want to take the biggest spread I can between stuff that's not even close to being drilled, but then eventually will. And they're going to look to sell out, you know, once that well comes online. And so, you know, I think if you if you look at it in that context, you know, again, your biggest risk is really time. And and it's like, I know the wells are going to be drilled. Um, I have X number of wells in my portfolio, so I don't have to take any sort of mechanical risk. There's no geological risk at this point. You know, we're not doing ex- exploratory things or, you know, acreage in the middle of nowhere, you know, that's not the play. The play is taking the spread between something that will be drilled to something that is actually producing. And, you know, that's going to be a multiple of your investment. And so we just have to think about it as how long is our capital going to be tied up? You know, what's the burn on the company in the meantime, right? Can they pay cash interest? Can they not? And then the reality is if you buy 
a number of positions. Some are going to be drilled sooner than later, and, and you can kind of sell those and harvest the cash flow and return the investment and pay your expenses. And so that that's really, you know, that's really the mentality for us is spread makes sense. You guys go and get it, you know, and we'll be as helpful as we can. Okay, great. And then kind of a different structure, but again, with a with a ground game firm, this this example is Delaware and Midland. You did a, a mix of debt and preferred equity facilities kind of in the one to $7 million range. And this firm's MO was to aggregate, you know, kind of incubate, I guess, the the assets, if you may, in their portfolio and then sell it. And what's interesting, you know, the Permian is a very unique animal. In general, in minerals, you can buy, incubate and sell, but Permian is such a frothy market. And that's the game in town for putting a lot of money to work for these larger funds. And so it doesn't have to get fully developed necessarily to get an ARB. If you get aggregate scale and folks need to put hundreds of millions of dollars to work, there's there's a premium that can get paid just oh you have you know white space and a handful of permits like if it's 100 acres versus 3000 NRAs that that becomes significant right because again these larger guys are betting on you know this stuff will get drilled in in the the next 3 to 5 years but they just need velocity capital so that's kind of the the backdrop for this team talk to me about structure and how you guys looked at it and the nuances versus what we just talked about um th- this team was was interesting because you know they they ran a different strategy which made a lot of sense and we did a handful of deals together just because they did a great job at it but you know they had acquired some minerals over time and you know they had basically used that as collateral to go out and and acquire more their specific strategy was they would buy multiple tracks you know, with with somewhat clouded title, and they would spend time, you know, cleaning up all the title, you know, getting signatures from everybody, resolving issues, you know, things that frankly, not a lot of people wanted to touch. And then once they did that, you know, sometimes it was a month, sometimes it was six months, you know, they would then, you know, look to sell everything together as, as one package and proving that, you know, this is now a, a clean asset. And it worked out great. It was a great strategy for them. It was something that obviously not a lot of, you know, capital was going into, but it was, again, a really smart team that, you know, was just doing something in the market where they felt that they could create a lot of value. And so, Pretty, pretty unique deal, but, you know, pretty smart team. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, th- this has been a great conversation. I, I, you know, I had a bunch of other questions, but we really touched on a lot of the different thematical things throughout the episode. But I guess the final thing would be just talking about the, the, the debt space at large, you know, trickle down effects of SVB, trickle down effects of ESG and, and commercial banks pulling out of oil and gas, just overall kind of how you see the landscape, you know, obviously when there's a need for capital and the, the supply of that capital is lowered, you, folks like you are in higher demand, which is great. But, you know, just tell me what you're seeing and, and how the really the business has changed for, for you guys. You've already mentioned Nana becoming an AFE financing, becoming a very big part of your business. I think that's a driver of, of of what I just mentioned, right? But over to you to kind of expand upon that. I think the, I mean, SVB, frankly, didn't have a lot of, you know, trickle down effects. I mean, frankly, we were we were more nervous at the time of our own bank going under than, you know, any impairment to the oil and gas space. You know, I think a lot of banks and, and probably unnecessarily became under pressure of just, oh my gosh, deposit flight, what's happening? A lot of Texas banks, frankly, didn't have the same setup or structure that SVB did. And so that really wasn't a big concern. I think a lot of banks have had tremendous pressure, especially around Texas, of just overexposure to commercial real estate. You know, that that has impacted people. It's it's really shortened their ability, you know, to lend and, and get 
good deals done that frankly they would like to do, but they just, you know, are being very cautious now. But I, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I still think there's so much, you know, blowback on ESG. And, you know, frankly, I think we're starting to see that, you know, kind of end. A lot of the wind farm stuff and, you know, solar panels, while well, I'm sure it has its place, you know, that's not getting the recognition it did. I think we're seeing a lot of, you know, companies, Siemens, I think, you know, they announced some very negative stuff on their wind farms. And so, you know, but banks have not come into oil and gas. I mean, again, that's going back to what we were talking about earlier with the the smaller guys afraid of P&A liability. I think that, you know, banks recognize that and they're being much more cautious around things. And, you know, you look at the, the universe now, you know, the, the large deals that are getting done, you know, I mean, you talk about the the Exxon, the Chevron deal, you know, that was effectively just a transfer of stock. I'm not really paying you a premium for your shares. I'm just allowing you to convert into, you know, the parent shares. Those are the big deals that are that are getting done. I think you trickle that all the way down to the bottom and look at the smaller players. And there's just not a lot of capital coming in. The, the old model of I'm going to buy and build. I'm going to get a bunch of acreage, drill a few wells, sell out for cash at a big premium. That's not happening today. You know, the, the things that are happening are really around guys that are just saying, I may not make a 5X, but I think I can make a 2X and I can do it in a way where I'm getting, you know, this sort of non-op acreage where I have less risk, more certainty of capital. I can buy minerals that is a perpetual asset that's not going to expire. And, you know, those are, I think, the teams that are really doing well. And unfortunately, there's just not a lot of bank capital, you know, for that type of strategy. Now. Yeah. Going back to your point on the, on the banks and overexposure to commercial real estate, I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, how, how in, in the context of, of minerals and non-op, you know, a lot of the folks that operate in the mineral space or high net worth folks and family offices, a lot of them have a decent amount of wealth tied up in their portfolios in real estate. And so while they may not be highly levered in the mineral space, they are highly levered in real estate. And when you look at, you know, all things together and moving pieces around in a portfolio and what to liquidate and, you know, kind of fix those ratios, I've sold a few deals where folks, you know, monetized a, a minerals position to pay down some of the debt on the real estate side. And I think wow. when you look at going to get access to to debt, you know, folks that you know, going to bank on the on the commercial side, going to banks, they need to put up more collateral, you know, I, I, because the banks are shoring up their balance sheets around real estate. I mean, these are all things I've heard and seen. And then the other thing too, just while we're talking about real estate, I, I think there's an interesting window of opportunity here is interest rates are high and insurance costs are high. You know, the the cap rates are compressed in real estate. It's hard to find good deals. And I think there's a really interesting opportunity for everyone out there listening to take capital from the real estate space and transfer it into minerals, whether it's in 1031 or it's, you know, capital that is traditionally looking at real estate and maybe pivoting to minerals in the short term. And the beautiful thing is if real estate's your MO, you can buy into minerals by the time is a little more opportune. And then when interest rates go down and real estate becomes a little bit better, you can 1031 back into real estate, right? If you, if you so choose. So uh, we can kind of end it on that note, but I think there's just, it's, I think the, the, punchline is it's interesting times and there's opportunity there. It just looks a lot different than it did five years ago. And um, yeah, I, I appreciate you all coming on. Your insights were really interesting. There's a lot that you can do in the minerals and nano space. And within those three buckets we talked about, you know, funding acquisitions, funding AFEs, and and really being a partner on the ground game for minerals. There's a lot of different ways you can structure it within those three buckets. So really appreciate you guys going in the weeds here and talking minerals and nano with me. I'll, 
I'll hand the floor over to you just to wrap it up. Yeah, th- thanks, Tim. We we appreciate the time. Always good to catch up. Last one aged well that we did a few years ago. I I, I hope that this will as well. But it's there, there's a lot of opportunity. I agree, and um, you know, share a lot of your sentiments. So let, let's stay in touch. Abishai. Yeah. No. I mean, same here. So look forward to again meeting you soon. But completely agree with with what you said in the end. I mean, uh, one other piece I was just add is I'm I'm pretty surprised with the level of discipline that like a lot of these operators are showing despite these high commodity prices. I mean, you start to see a lot of froth coming into the market, which you're not. So I think this is, uh, like you mentioned, like this is actually a great environment to be in the space and kind of we're fortunate and just thankful for the opportunity. All right, gents. We'll take care and we'll see you in a few weeks. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. See ya. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments, nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.